Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full Service Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon, and welcome to Junctional Thinking on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Pierre Vigilance, and welcome once again to the Junctional Thinking podcast. Um, My career has taken me through a number of different sectors, from clinical training in emergency medicine through to work in the government sector, nonprofit sector, academia, and now into some advisory consulting. And in that journey, it's come clear to me that health and health outcomes are really not just to be the uh, sort of responsibility of the healthcare sector, that we have to have a number of different partners involved in addressing some of the determinants of health, as we call them, or the factors that impact health that are upstream of the actual diagnoses. And in order to do that, we as population health, health, health care, or social impact-oriented people need to be talking to folks outside of our sectors in order to get this work done. So I've been able to work with transportation, technology, a bit of impact investment, and a number of different folks from different sectors. And that's really the, the thesis of the Junctional Thinking podcast and Junctional Thinking in general is that if we have a bunch of different people coming together to solve problems, we can do that more effectively and we can do that with intention. Um, and I think that there are some skills related to being a junctional thinker that are important. And uh, it's also important to have a bunch of really good people around you in order to be able to engage in junctional thinking. So I'm always really happy to be Uh, able to welcome friends and guests to the show who uh, themselves are doing great things um, and who can hopefully help you, the listener, learn about innovative ways to impact the world that you're involved with. Primarily, yes, to impact health outcomes, but really to impact community wellness just in general. So today, I'm really, really pleased to be joined by two people. I sort of was going to call this show, Who You Gonna Call?, and everyone was supposed to just bust out and say Ghostbusters, but that's so corny. Um, but I'm joined by Tasia O'Brien, who is the... Uh, I'll let them introduce themselves, but I will say that Tasia and I met not too long ago. She's from New York City, works up there primarily in the... I think it's the, the, the technology and community engagement space, I think is probably a, one way to say it, but I'll let her describe it. But she's the, the CEO and founder one of the founders of Seam Social Labs. And I'm also joined by Daniel Oconquo, who is an attorney by background who works in a number of different sectors, but primarily the nonprofit space in philanthropy. And uh, we actually met, um, <laughs> we met a few years ago trying to stay in shape and um, <laughs> doing some things still that... Trying. Yeah, still trying. Yeah, still trying. But uh, a part of that network, um, also uh, shout out to uh, the, the very illustrious... I've never done this before on the show because I think you're, you're the first frat brother of mine that's been on the show, so I have to, excuse me for one second, just, just give a shout out to Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. And um, thank you, bro, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So um, let me let you do your intros, actually, because I think it's really important for people to know who you are and where you're coming from. Excuse me. <clears throat> Taisha. 
would you uh, would you mind just sort of giving us a little intro into who you are and uh, what you are getting into right now with Scene? Yeah. Um, so thanks for having me here. It's exciting to be here in conversation with both of you. Um, I'm the CEO and founder of Scene Social Labs. We are a mission-driven startup um, that is focused on empowering disinvested communities through innovation and technology. Um, one of the ways we are doing that, and this is what we've prioritized for the next first couple of years, is Synergize Insights, which is a real estate technology that we've created that allows us to go on the ground and collect deep socioeconomic insights from community residents in order to use that to measure against public health data and to deliver really important and critical reports and insights to city agencies and real estate developers so we can start um, really advancing the movement for equitable development and really pushing along the line of um, getting more affordable housing, more workforce development, and figuring out some of the predeterminants of health, but from the, you know, the housing lens, really. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. And Daniel, um, the nonprofit and philanthropy background that you have, you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, no, thanks again for having me. Yes, I'm, I'm Daniel Oconquo, kind of like you, Pierre. I've had a, a bit of a varied career. I think it just means I'm old. Let's start there. Don't say that. Don't, we don't use that uh, word on the show. Daniel. We don't. Say aged and wise. Seasoned. 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 Good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, yes, like you said, I'm, I'm trained as an attorney, um, but I've, I've had a number of positions. I started and ran a nonprofit here in D.C. that focused on systemic juvenile justice reform. Ran that for about 10 years. It's now um, at Georgetown's Law Center, and I stepped into the private sector. I did some political consulting, and now I'm in corporate philanthropy where we really look to kind of prop up the, the nonprofit sector and make sure that co our corporate resources are kind of equitably distributed across the nonprofit sectors where, um, where we're, we're making investments. So um, really excited to have this conversation today. Something, if you don't mind, something that struck me earlier when you're talking about junctional thinking and, and how so many of the problems aren't linear, so they can't have linear solutions. Right. So this, this, not, this, this notion that you're advancing of needing to talk to people in multiple sectors, I think, is probably the only way to solve some of the, the issues that, that, that you're looking to address. Right, right. Something I'm interested in, in learning about from everybody that I talk to, though, speaking to that linearity or the lack thereof, is the paths that you as individuals took to get to this point. <clears throat> I keep doing that, sorry. And um, if you wouldn't mind, sort of, both of you, sort of talking a bit about how you got to this point and is this where you expected that you were going to be with respect to your career? Um, you know, did you go to school to do this or, or not? I mean, and I'll start with you, Taj, and then to certainly jump over to Daniel. Right. Um, so I would definitely say that I've had a varied career myself as well. Yeah. Um, I went to school for film, um, although my headline major was communications. Okay. Um, always been interested in the visual arts, but... Long story short, I didn't realize how much I just love the idea of storytelling. Ah, um, so I graduated in 2008, which was not a good time to graduate from college. <laughs> and right. I ended up in um, just the corporate side doing sales and loved what I was doing, loved connecting with people, but realized I wanted to have more cause behind it. So I ended up in business development and as an account executive for a nonprofit organization. And that kind of forged my career forward in terms of communications, marketing, and sales at nonprofits. Um, worked at quite a few nonprofits that were focused on community development, um, you know, black arts, um, 
develop, um, supporting individuals with development, de developmental disabilities. And what I kept realizing, no matter what sector I was in, was that there were these certain issues with you know, the ability to find a job or the ability to connect in your community or find housing. They were kind of across the board. Yeah. And it really came to a head when I was working at um, this organization as an account executive. And Barclays Center was about to open in Brooklyn. The community was pissed off. Everyone was freaking out. They were worried about losing their homes and so on, rightfully so. Right. So I kind of saw it as an opportunity um, from a very sales standpoint to say, maybe we can you know, get a really good account here from the nonprofit side, but really do some good with it. So we kind of forged our way in with um, the real estate developer behind the arena and secured over 200 jobs for youth with disabilities and it's youth in general in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, so it felt amazing to do that. But then I learned so much about the real estate industry and how many stakeholders and people are at play. And mm -hmm. I started to really get obsessed with this idea of how we in the community, because I also grew up in like a gentrified, now displaced community, Bushwick in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. learned so late about what's happening. Right. Like on the ground, you know, my parents didn't have time to attend community board hearings, knew nothing about that. So when it comes to civic engagement and understanding what's going on, who's, who's giving transparent information? We see the construction signs go up and then that's it. Um, but what's really at play and what's really happening are really long game chess strategy plans that take upwards of a decade. Mm -hmm. And we have no insight to that. So really started pouring through that. And that's kind of what led me to where I am today. So as you hear this, thank you for that, Taisha. As you hear this, Daniel, and think about sort of the juvenile justice work and, and the connection between a, a lot of times, at least the, the younger people that I've spoken to, who have gotten caught up in the juvenile justice system have done so as a result, have become so as a result of opportunity challenges, right? Um, and, and maybe some education-related things, but if, had, had it been for them being able to be engaged and have a meaningful employment, then they might not have gone down some other roads. You see the crossover between some of this development-related stuff and communities and the changes that are going on there and the work that you were doing with the Juvenile Justice Center. Sure, sure, absolutely. And I think one thing when, when you talk to people who are working with young people who are or, or aren't system involved, one thing that is kind of a constant is the need for varied enriched opportunities, right? You go, to, you go to a community like the ones that surround DC and the Beltway mm -hmm. that are more affluent, you don't see a dearth of activities. You see activities on any, any number of levels. You want to build a robot, there's a robot club. You want to start a business, there's a small business club. And these, and these opportunities are afforded to young people to address any kind of interest that they have. And so for a, a lot of our community, particularly in communities that are under-resourced or disinvested, have been disinvested in, those same type of opportunities just, just aren't there. And so I think I, I get tingles when I hear about the work you were doing and saying, Look, we went to them and said, we want to carve out jobs for this population, particularly for young people and, and, and folks with disabilities, where you know that entry-level job can translate into so much more down the road. It's not just employment for that time, but I'm sure, as, as you've said here in some of our conversations, there's learning that goes along with being employed, with having a job. There's right. all these other soft skills. There's all these other things yeah, that come exactly. along with just having a job. It's not just money every two weeks in your account and somewhere to go from, you know, seven to seven. Mm -hmm. 
And that's that's interesting that the use of the term soft skills, which I, I know what you're talking about. I, I I'd rather call them um, horizontal because when people hear soft. They, I find that some folks are just sort of like, I don't want soft skills. I, sure. want, I want hard skills, you know. I want, I want, but I get what you're saying, though. But these are the things that translate beyond the specifics of the work that you're doing or beyond a particular vertical. And they, they translate right. across that sectors. And I, I actually think they probably should be called hard skills because ah. getting up and, and doing the work you are hired to do, you already know how to do that because you got the job or were right. given the chance. It's the things... There's no manual for these horizontal skills. Right. They're the ones you have to you have to walk into a place and yeah. you have to figure out who's who, what's the rhythm of the place, who who's making decisions, who do who's the person behind the person making the decisions that right. I get to know. Those things aren't easy, and they're no. certainly not soft. They're probably no, no, the no, hardest things hard. yeah. to pick up on. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What are you, gonna, what are you about to say? Oh no, just agree. They're very experience based, and if you're not given an opportunity to get an experience, you just don't pick up on those things and. You know, as you get older and older, you just get more and more lagged behind in term, in terms of society or whatever. Mm-hmm. Without those, absolutely, absolutely. You're listening to the voices of Taija O'Brien, a CEO and founder of Seam Social Labs out of New York City, and Daniel Leconquo, um, philanthropy advisor, a nonprofit advisor here in Washington D.C. Um, this is the Junctional Thinking Podcast on Full Service Radio, and I'm your host Pierre Vigilance, and we're talking a bit about the skills that come along with opportunities that Taisha was disca- describing having forged some of those opportunities for people at the Barclays Center job piece and, and then talk a little bit about this this notion of you know what you need to learn in order to be functional on a job and the whole thing about the verticals that education typically gives us, like are you able to code or are you able to evaluate or are you able to produce a film or are you able to write a a brief? These are all the vertical skills and that's great. But then the how do you interact with people and do some of these other things is just as important. I was with um, a former guest last night, Monica Kang and her group Innovators Box and she as 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 an entrepreneur is still every day trying to learn how to do better at her own job, right? That's a sort of an ongoing thing. So if you were to sort of think about back, either professionally or personally, the, the influencer or influencers that you really go back to and listen to and pay attention to, for, for each of you, sort of who, who would that be? I'm going to start, start with you, Dan. Sure, sure. And that's, that, that's a good question, I think. For me, I don't have one kind of North Star person that I've looked at to. I think what has been helpful for me in in my career is one, when I get into a new place and I've been in a number of of organizations, small, very small, medium sized and Mm -hmm. and large, is, is really looking to see who is the person there that didn't just do one thing. That they've gotten, they're they're probably they're they're higher than me, but they didn't just do that thing. How did and the, and then get to know that person and kind of use them as as a mentor to kind of figure out what were some of the things that that they were were able to do. So I've kind of always tried to look for people um, who have been able to navigate different organizations, but not just because of just one skill. Okay, all right. So you've, you've been deliberate in trying to see if they've had multiple different 
skills that you feel like you may want to have or are interested in learning more about? Sure. sure. Okay. 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 And how about you? Have you gone about it the same way or has it been a different sort of method of doing it for you? Yeah, I think Vines is a bit different but the same um so i also don't have a north star this like one person who i'm like i must read every book or every article they've ever done um i tend to really like people who go against the grain right um and that can be a character from a movie that i'm like i start idolizing and i'm like that person is so awesome or it can be actual people and activists in history um it could be anyone from you know cree summer to members of the black panther party because i feel like you know speaking of junctional um, to solve some of society's biggest problems, we have to apply different mindsets. And I think from a social standpoint, we are so trained to be like, if I'm going to be a lawyer, I am a lawyer. And then I just practice law and that's it. And, you know, what happens when you, you take that law and the mindset and the education and the intellectual you know, framework that you're given behind that and apply it elsewhere. And that's when I think you really start getting innovation. Right. I think, and I know you probably weren't planning on sort of teeing up this ball for me to beat the (laughs) snot out of right now. But I think that what you just said about, so I feel like in general, people who go to law school tend to end up in a number of different spaces because they're they're taught, I I didn't go to law school. My sister's an attorney though, and she's very much in the law, right? That's what she does. But she has been taught to think and problem solve in a way that translates into multiple sectors. So it's not surprising to see an attorney who becomes a consultant, an advisor, stays in the law only, gets into nonprofit work, whatever it is. In health, and in public health particularly, I think it's a bit more siloed and linear, unfortunately. And so if you go to public health school, then you're expected to end up in some, I think, relatively predetermined lanes of what public health has been defined as or described as, typically government-oriented public sector work. When you start talking about the need for you as a public health practitioner in juvenile justice or the need for you as a public health professional in civic, tech apl- civic technology application development, I know that there are folks out there who are saying this sort of like, well, why why would we be involved with that? In the same way that I know that some public health types are sort of like, well, why do we need to teach leadership? And it blows my mind that this is sort of how we've allowed the academy, if you will, of public health, particularly education. Sorry, I'm on a soapbox a little bit. Alexia's (laughs) going to start shaking her head in a minute. To do this, right? To do this to the sector and to the people who are in it. So... If you were trying to sort of crack that code and say to people out there who, are, who feel like they are in a lane but want to get out of that lane and not, not live necessarily in that one space, what advice would you give them about in order to, to facilitate them getting out of that lane? How, how would you suggest they go about doing that? Do you have any ideas? Uh, sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll, go ahead. Yeah, you can drop in. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, I think the the process of getting out of that lane has to start with an inward looking process first. Mm -hmm. Um, And to use your example, if you're in, you know, a public health silo, there's probably something about that silo that you liked. It's probably not the entirety of that silo. It's, but there is something that you liked. Is it, is it interfacing with the public? Right. Is it research in a lab? Is it the writing? What part of it is, is there? What, what, what can you extract that is like the essence of what you like. 
that little nugget is probably present in other things. So right. how can you take that kind of spore and throw it out yes. into the, the, the pasture yes, of the yes, world yes, yes, yes. and where can it, can it land, germinate, and then sprout and grow fruit? So I think it has to start with what do I, it's not just what do I like. It's like, what is it about this that I like and that I'm good at? Because you may like a lot of things, but that might not get you to a, that might not be where you want to have your job. Right. Right. Yeah. It can Absolutely. be. Absolutely. No, I, I agree. I agree. What do you think? Uh, I completely agree. I think the, you, when you're in that silo, you feel it because I think there may be points when you're, when you're ready to grow past it anyway, you start to feel yourself like rubbing against everything that seems to be natural order in that silo. And then like you're saying things and people are like, why would you say that? You know how it is here. And when I was in a nonprofit sector, a lot of people would say, oh man, what's that term? Um, this is the nonprofit industrial complex. This is just how it works. And I'd be right. like, so we're okay with this? Right. Like, and then I felt like I was saying that too much. And then I was like, all right, it's time to look inward and figure out how are we going to figure uh, it out? Okay. How are we going to get out of this? And then the next step is like out, you know, outside of, once you look inward, then looking outside and being like, all right, what fears do I have to conquer to be able to jump out of this silo? Mm. Cause it's like a stream and you're stuck in it, so you gotta be like, all right, here we go, let's yeah. do this. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, yeah. no, I get you. I would say, I would add to that too, for, for anyone who's in that position, um, you know, I've kind of gone from organization to organization to, to be patient with yourself. Mm. Like that first move might yeah. not be the move. Yeah, That might be the move next to the move next to the move. Mm -hmm. right. And so you don't know what that move is preparing you for at the time. Right. Um, you know, some would say that, that you can look at that in a spiritual way or you can look at it just in a practical way. Like that's probably not the last position or the last interest that you'll ever have. Right. right. But you might have to take that step to get to the one where you'll ultimately, you know, find your your home. But you're making me think about some of the conversations I have with folks who tell me now they as learners want to experience that thing. But they've got pressure, maybe not from a job set of um, constraints like you were referring to, but from a little place called family. Oh. Uh, no. <laughs> There's a groan <laughs> from my page. Who, who sort of might say to you, well, you know, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you, why are you, why do you need to test the water out over there when what you should be doing is X? Because, you know, everybody in our families knows what we should be doing, right? So how how have you had to deal with that, if at all? I know I've had to deal with it, and I listen to a lot of people talk about, like, well, you know, I think I'm expected to do this. I'd like to go do this, but it's challenging for me to do that just because of this family pressure. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll be... I haven't had that from okay, my good. family, and I'm fortunate to have an incredibly supportive wife who has, has been with me through a number of transitions. Um, but I think... Were I to, to, to think of it, I think that, you know, at a base level, it's you're the one going, walking out the front door every day. Um, and I think if you're able to at least have that inward conversation about the why you want to do something, it might be e easier to have that conversation with someone else. Yeah. 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 I haven't had as much pushback from my good. family, at least as I've expected. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. um, so that's good. Uh, I do have a lot of friends and peers who deal with that, though. Yeah. Um, 
And the thing that I tell them in a lot of my friends tend to come from Caribbean backgrounds. So there's like mm-hmm. very particular expectations in terms of what you should be yeah. doing. Yeah. And you, this is how you have to do it. And then that's it. There's no questions. There's yeah. not even room for conversation. Yeah. Um, and the thing that I always tell my friends and peers is, you know, from a legacy generational lineage standpoint, um, we didn't fight this hard to just stop here. Right. Like, so that's how I, I think of it. Like, we didn't go through all the things we went through right. for me to be like, oh, okay, I'm just going to do what everybody thinks I should do and what society told me to do. Right. Like, that's not enough. Right, right. And I got to, before we take this little short break, I got to shout out mom and dad. Love you dearly. <laughs> but th- th- and thanks for all the, all, the, all the nudges and pushes and shoves. <laughs> but, and I know I probably did some things that weren't quite on the same line, but still appreciate you all the, all the same. Um, you are listening to the Junctional Thinking Podcast here on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Uh, my guests today are Taeja O'Brien from Seam Social Labs and Daniel Conquo from right here in Washington, D.C. in the philanthropy nonprofit sector. And we will be right back in a minute. This is Pierre Vigilance, your host of Junctional Thinking Podcast, broadcasting live from the Adams Morgan, from the Line Hotel <laughs> in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Um, this conversation is, uh, is, is really, really interesting with uh, Daniel Conquo um, and Taeja O'Brien. We were talking a little bit about some of the influences and influencers um, of our movement into the particular sectors and places that we're in now and the work that we're doing. Taeja, you brought up, you used the word um, fear um, in, in speaking to, I think, um, you know, maybe people's sentiments related to stepping out of a lane, right? Um, and I think that something that I've noticed is, uh, and something that I may have been guilty of myself, is my early um, fear of leadership positions. And if you will, sort of the, my, or my hesitation to want to take on leadership positions. And I think I lost that relatively, uh, that hesitation relatively early in life, but I know others who haven't, and they struggle with... Um, 
people who are well-intentioned, pushing them into a position and saying, hey, look, we think you can do this now, but they're not wanting to do it. I know I don't want that promotion. I don't want that responsibility. I'm not ready. Um, have either of you sort of experienced that? And, and particularly, Utasia is the, the, the founder of a company, right? Um, is that something that you were just sort of like, hey, you know what? I'm ready. That's good. Or were you like, no, this needs to happen. And if, if not me, then who? So I may not be comfortable in this, but I need to go. I need to do this. Yeah, I'm someone who's, I guess, perfectly fine being uncomfortable. So I, um, even as a kid, I would do a lot of, I guess, entrepreneurial things and find ways to engage other people and see opportunities that um, I'm sure other people saw, but that I had no problem jumping into because I always assumed that if I'd fail that, you know, that'd be fine and I'd learn something and I'd pick back up up and keep moving. Um, but I do know people and even speak to a lot of people on my team. Um, and we have a pretty small team. There's six of us who... I've talked to them a lot about this, especially being a black woman-founded startup mm -hmm. um, about fear. I have two, two of my co-founders are much younger, um, and they've discussed, like, oh, you know, I don't know if I'm ready for this. You know, they're, they're passionate, they're committed, but they see this as, they see this startup tech game as not their game. So oh. they're like, I'm, I'm, you know, this is, I'm not the demographic that is in this. Oh. And because I have like, you know, a seasoned career, I'm like, ah, I don't care. I'm, I'm going into this regardless. So who do they see? And are they women of color as yes. well? They're women of yeah, color. Yeah, my co-founders are two black women. Okay. Yeah. And, and who, so who do they see as, I know the answer to the question, but from your perspective, like, who do they see as being the audience, if you will? They don't see themselves in it. Who is it? Um, I guess... Um, I'm not sure the answer to that question. Oh, okay. Yes, I am. Um, so the startup industry is just filled with white men. And then you have some women in there. It's like a really small percentage. Um, but that's it. Like, and there's starting, there's this movement that's been surging for the past few years. It's starting to bubble with more people of color. You have amazing events and conferences around it. And you can insert yourself in those spaces. But even once you get out of those spaces and you go back to work, um, like one of my co-founders has worked at Google, and going out of the space of like a conference where it's all black people in tech, you go back to your workspace and it's still, you're the only person or you're the only one. Um, and it tends to feel very uncomfortable. And I think it's even more uncomfortable for younger people who see this shift. Whereas like I grew up and that's all I knew. Like when I worked in corporate, I was like always the only one. So it was just like, yeah, Usual. this is just life. Yeah, this is just norm. Right. Yeah. Right. As you look at this from the nonprofit sector, um, do you see the same sort of thing? And, I, and I'm, I'm wondering from two perspectives. One, on the operational side of the nonprofit sector, and then on the funding side of nonprofits. I think there's two different faces to that world. Sure. So I think sometimes when I listen to what you're saying in, in this notion of fear and leadership, on the nonprofit side, I think sometimes the leadership just sneaks up on you. Right. You know, so many people just start doing the work. Right. And I think if I look at my career, that's kind of what happened. I and along with some of my friends just started doing the work. And someone said, hey, you're doing the work in this organization. Here's some money to do it more often. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden found myself in, in a leadership position. Right. But it, there was almost no time to be afraid because... 
the work didn't stop. Yeah. And so I think sometimes um, when it's you, you, you posit that, are you a leader? Are you doing the work? Those aren't disconnected. Sometimes just doing the work puts you in that position. You don't even have time. I think there's a saying in the nonprofit industrial complex that you're never an executive director until you are one. There's right. really no there's really no training for it now. I think there are a lot of training resources for people who are already in that position. Um, but I think sometimes, again, to to return to what I was saying, sometimes that just that just sneaks up on you. Um, on the funding side, I think that um, I, I think of the notion of fear impacting the funding side of what are people comfortable with putting their money behind. Mm. Um, and I think that goes across all philanthropic sectors. There's, there's not one that, that has positions, um, subject matter areas that they're not, that, that, that they're not, aren't, that aren't no go zones for right. them. And right. so, and some of that, and, you know, and, and some of that is rightly so it's their money. They can, they can do what they want with it. Some it could negatively impact their business. So that's understandable, but there is definitely, I think even there are edges that, that philanthropy could push into that on the margin, that fear stops them from kind of breaking through that, mm. that membrane, right? Mm. Where, so for example, mm. if you say, you know, I don't want to fund um, criminal justice work. Well, do you want to fund reentry work? No, I don't want to do that. But do you want to fund small businesses? Well, I can get with that. Okay, but what about small businesses run by returning citizens? Mm. Now, where are we, right? And so it's, it's, it's kind of like really kind of, not trying to be cute about it, but really trying to pull at those strings and find out, okay, where is that kind of that, 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 that fear barrier and can that be pushed back, you know? Um, and, and I think that's what, that's kind of what expands the pie for, for everyone, particularly in, in, in that sector. Yeah. I think that a lot of this for me comes down to sort of like, there's what we're saying and there's what we're really saying. So it's sort of like there's the... Um, and I think that we've talked a little bit about this, my concern about the conflation of the terms outputs and outcomes, right? There's a lot of people putting a lot of points on boards with respect to doing things, right? There are outputs, built X number of units, sold X number of units, um, put X number of people in a job. But then how long was that person in that job and did the person get the skills to, to your point that you mentioned earlier on in the show, you talked about people getting a job, did they get trained in order to do not just that job but then other jobs like it, sort of when that job in that particular venue is over, they get to do it somewhere else. And uh, Maddie Henson, who uh, is the uh, president and CEO of the Washington Regional Area Grant Makers Association, she um, has sort of spoken about, you know, how do we push through, to your point, and really get to points where we are dealing with outcomes and trying to push to those? And sort of from, from both of you, I'd be really interested in sort of hearing, you know, how how do we get there? Because I think what we often get paid for is outputs, right? So if you so you you did something, good job, but then did you go back and measure what that something did for the 
the people who you put it in place for. And are there outcomes? I'm not saying there's no outcome measurement happening out there. It's clearly there is. But it seems like it is uncomfortable to think about this down-the-road thing of some outcomes where we change people's lives because that's what we say that we're doing, but is it what we're really doing? Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you've got a reaction sure. to any of that. I, I do. I think, and I think there, there has been this, this tension between outputs and outcomes and, and which is which. Right. When, when I think about it, I think of outcomes. Outcomes are big. Right. Outcomes aren't, are, are difficult to measure because they're... they're they're longitudinal. Like mm-hmm. you, you just mentioned, we're changing someone's life or we're changing lives. That doesn't happen in a grant cycle, right? And so, and, and so when you say we're looking at outcomes, you want to change health outcomes for black people in Washington, D.C. That is an enormous chunk yeah, to bite big. off. Yeah. <laughs> and it has many different things. So, so when, you, when you say, well, what, how do we get to outcomes? It's going to take a lot of outputs, but starting with that big thing and then mm-hmm. saying like, okay, how are we going to get, what's the thing before the thing that right. we need to do? Yeah, yeah, and right. what's the thing before that? And so let's, let's call that the outcome we're going to, but we're going to put in these benchmarks along the way right. to mark our progress, mm-hmm. but we're not going to be complacent and call those outcomes, right? We're yeah, going to yeah, say yeah. that this is just a pit stop. We were okay. coming into pit lane to refuel yeah. and yeah, notice yeah. that we've gone 20 laps out of 50 uh, right. and now we're going to go another 10 and come back and say we've got, you know, and so I just, I just think working backwards and being not afraid to, I think from both the, the, the funding community and the organizational community to say, all right, we're not going to call ourselves done when we get here and we're not going to expect you to be done in when this amount of time there. when you get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking about getting there, Project Synergize. Sorry, I didn't know. Did you have a, anything you wanted to react to what Daniel was saying? I'm sorry, no, no, I... that was the, yeah, that was great. Project Synergize, though, um, tries to, first of all, engages communities in getting their sentiment and desires, etc., mm-hmm. and tries to then inform developers of what it is that community sentiment is so that there's not ignorance with respect to that. That in and of itself, I think, is sort of driving towards good outcomes for the community. But tell us a bit about Synergize and sort of how you envision that platform impacting community outcomes. Uh, yeah, so I think in especially in terms of the outputs versus the outcomes, mm-hmm. um, the outputs are going to be the immediate things we see. So we have this data that we collect, socioeconomic needs, um, that a local government has not necessarily invested in that the community may want, um, some values, so asset mapping, also looking at community member sentiments on major development projects. Um, and we take that and say, okay, here are the potential things you can do in this community. So if we go to Soundview in the Bronx, we know that that area is a food desert. We have that data, but then making sure and validating that with actual community members and then saying to a developer, okay, you are looking at building this huge project there. How can we get the ground floor of this to be fresh food for the community? That's a great output because that's something that can happen in like the next, you know, two to three years, depending on how long or big the project is. And then we have fresh food. But are we getting this fresh food actually to the people who need it? That's a whole nother question, right? 
So then we start looking at, um, there's a high correlation between, in New York City at least, the amount of bodegas and the level of economic distress in a community mm -hmm. because bodegas don't tend to have fresh food. So then how can we start to look at the affordability of this fresh food? How do we have data points that are around, you know, the percentage of people who are insured in this neighborhood, um, the rent burden that they have, right? Because if you have a high rent burden, you can't afford to pay for fresh food because it tends to be expensive. So we collect all of these and look at them holistically to say, are all of these points being driven down? So when that fresh food is available in three years, people can actually go to it and afford it and eat it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear what you're saying. So you sort of, and then, so we can't even begin to get to addressing the burden of diabetes in a community mm -hmm. or saying, well, the hemoglobin A1C has gone from this to this and linking that to the availability of better food without doing all the steps that are in between that change in that clinical metric and the availability of the food. The availability of the food can happen pretty quickly, to yeah. your point. Yeah. All the other things that go into the routine consumption of that better food such that it replaces some other things mm -hmm. and then drives down these other clinical metrics, which are the concern of, say, healthcare, that timeline is much longer than three years. Right. But the time in which people are really expected to have some kind of an outcome is generally pretty short, unfortunately. Yeah. So that's why I think sometimes it's easier to sort of say, well, we've got a farmer's market here. That's an outcome. Fresh fruits and vegetables for everybody, no problem. And we're done. And that's, but when we start to ask the harder question, it's becoming a bit more, it becomes a bit more difficult and it becomes longer mm -hmm. for us to get to that. Uh, we've been um, talking for a little bit here with Taija O'Brien and uh, Daniel Oconquo. This is a full service radio broadcasting live from the Adams, uh, I keep doing that, the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Pierre Vigilance. And we've just been talking for a second about outputs versus outcomes and then and projects synergized. But I wanted to also see whether or not Daniel, from your perspective, is there, is there some work that you're particularly excited about now that you're getting into with um, the philanthropic organization that you're part of um, that you're really excited about and you think can facilitate the driving of better community outcomes, just generally speaking, not necessarily health? Sure. I mean, I think one thing that I'm really excited about that I think is happening across the country is this. Um, notion of cohort-based work. Mm -hmm. One thing I think you see is across so many cities, you see so many organizations that are micro-located. They're providing services for one particular community, um, and they're doing as you know good jobs or as best as they they can with the resources they have. And that's happening all over individual cities. But what's happening a lot of times is there isn't. That there isn't this margin to do advocacy or systems change work along with the direct services that are that are being provided. So I think one thing that philanthropy is trying to do is how do we seed that policy and advocacy work and create the margin for organizations that, like you're saying, are getting community level data on what communities need. How are how are those organizations using what they're what's bubbling up from each of these communities into kind of this systems change work so that you can start to get towards outcomes where, you know, I mean, an example, I think you can take an example from, from 
the juvenile justice world, organizations that are serving young people, how do they band together to kind of make systemic change at the, at the legislative and regulatory level so that the ecosystem which they're operating is actually good for kids. And it's not just, we need so many organizations to provide services, provide services, provide services. You know, we have lots of organizations who are doing urban farming, but how do you, how do you create a health, uh, a health equity ecosystem in a city so that you don't need all these individual organizations providing services in order to get good health right, outcomes? Right, right, so, right, right. so I think as a philanthropy community, seeding some of that cohort-based work and building the capacity of organizations to either work in coalition or to do some policy work um, is something I think that um, is going to prove to be um, really effective in, in years to come. I wonder, we have just a couple minutes left, and I think that the one thing that I wanted to ask both of you uh, was to sort of just, uh, if you could very quickly tell me about a time when you have had to engage and use an abundance of patience in order to get through something. I know that both of you have great ideas, you're very forward-leaning people, you take leadership positions very seriously, you want to impact communities. So patience is something that might be in abundance in each of you, I don't know, or it might be something that's in major, major need of being upgraded. So how do you feel about, so where have you had to be more patient and, and how, how have you done that? If you could just give us a snippet into, into that, either of you, I don't know who, whoever wants to go. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to go. Well, I, we have three kids, so I feel like I do, I do that every morning when we're trying to get out of the house. Um, but uh, I think one thing, I'll, I'll go back to my, my time doing um, juvenile justice work in the district. You know, advocacy work is a long slog. It takes a lot. And so, um, you know, we were able to get a pretty significant piece of legislation passed, but that was just the, the out, um, that, that, that's what came out of three, four years of gathering data from young people and their families, of going to meet with the system stakeholders, with writing policy briefs for policymakers, with, you know, biweekly, monthly coalition meetings, all these things that happened behind the scene before this kind of splashy thing yeah. happened. So it's, yeah. it's kind of, I would say, exercising the patience to know that you've got to put all these little building blocks in place, which sometimes um, can be pretty frustrating because you're not seeing the ball get moved. Right. But knowing that you can't move the ball without doing without that. Without doing that mm-hmm. stuff. Okay. How about for you with, with Seam or, or Project Synergize or, or, or even before them? Um, yeah, I think I definitely practice patience every day because I'm naturally in an industry that is designed and wants you to have hockey stick, fast, ridiculous amount of growth, but realizing that because we have a social impact lens and we're a benefit corporation, that we want growth, but we want the impact. We want the outputs and the outcomes. Yes. So I practice every single day just... Um, you, you know, for those who get it, you'll get it just like literally like slowing down my entire day to hour to hour okay. and, you know, looking at what I can tackle in those moments. And slowly that builds into something that starts to like have a groundswell almost. Right. Um, but, you know, this this work does take time and you have to be very cognizant of that. And I think that my, you know, nonprofit background really helps me put that hat on and realize like, oh, I, I will look back in three years and be like, oh, look at 
there's that one thing. <laughs> right, yeah. right. In part because you broke down, and that's all the self-awareness piece too, knowing how well you work, mm-hmm. thinking about things at, at the day's width, probably not so great, but you can break it down into the hour, and that's a lot more useful. Well, look, I, I can't thank you both enough for taking the time to sit down and, and chat today. Hopefully, uh, listeners got a chance to get a bit of insight into how each of you think about your career paths to this point and all of the processes that you put in place to get to outcomes, um, as well as the outputs along the way as well. Um, this has been another episode of the Junctional Thinking Podcast, broadcasting live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. My guest today, Taiz O'Brien from Seam Social Labs, and Daniel Oconquo, who is uh, with J.P. Morgan Chase, actually, uh, and doing some work in the nonprofit um Division of that of that community benefit uh, nonprofit branch of that philanthropic organization. Sorry, it's it's the end of the show, so my words are now getting caught up. Thank you all for listening. I'm looking forward to the next episode, and uh, please subscribe to the show. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullserviceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.